pain has reached epidemic proportions in America. I'm Dr. Paul Christo. This is Aches and Gains. Dr. Paul Christo is one of America's leading experts on relieving pain. He's board-certified, Harvard-trained, and a pain medicine specialist at Johns Hopkins. U.S. News & World Report ranks him as a top doctor and among the top 1% in the nation for pain management. Becker's Review selected him as one of the 70 best pain management physicians in America. He's listed as a super doctor for the Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Northern Virginia area. Aches and Gains is a weekly talk show covering all aspects of pain and pain relief. The human impact is real. Older adults, children, and even infants struggle to cope with pain. But there's hope, and there are treatments that can ease pain and suffering. The show offers compelling stories about people who've found relief. We share cutting-edge treatments from contributing experts, and we offer ways to help people cope with their pain. Welcome to the show. Drug addiction is a serious threat to our country's public health because it leads to lost lives and lost productivity. Because there have been an escalating number of deaths related to opioids, the government, the Centers for Disease Control, and the media have initiated a crackdown on the supply of opioids. Some experts feel that this is needed, while others feel that the war on opioids is hurting patients who need them most. On the show we did called The War on Opioids, we heard how successfully Angelica has used opioid therapy to control 20 years of continual joint pain from a condition known as Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Today, we'll hear the story of Chris Heron. In contrast to Angelica, Chris began abusing opioids for the euphoric feeling and the sense of escapism they provided. Chris was a talented professional basketball player playing for the Denver Nuggets and the Boston Celtics. At the height of his substance abuse, he overdosed on heroin, crashed and died for 30 seconds. But he's been sober since 2008, refocused his life, and speaks to groups throughout the country about the dangers of substance abuse. Chris even created the Heron Project, which helps steer people to treatment, educate the public, and mentor those at risk. Aches and Gains is supported by Medtronic, Purdue Pharma, Teva Pharmaceuticals, Millennium Laboratories, The Pain Community, and Boston Scientific. For live online listening to Aches and Gains, please go to paulchristomd.com. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulchristomd.com. Chris Heron has been drug and alcohol-free since 2008. His remarkable story has been captured in a book called Basketball Junkie and an ESPN documentary called Unguarded. Chris, welcome to Aches and Gains. Thank you. You are quite a successful basketball player, playing for for the Denver Nuggets and then the Boston Celtics. But while you were with the Celtics, you started using opioids, uh, things like OxyContin and Vicodin and Percocet. What led you down that path? For the feeling, for the effect, escape. When I was in high school, parents would leave their Vicodins in the medicine cabinet, and me and my friends would grab them. Mm -hmm. OxyContin wasn't the first pill I took, but it was the worst pill I took. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. Right. So your pathway to addiction began with experimentation. And, you know, really, society, at least our society, is a very pill-popping society that's inclined to experimentation and substance abuse. In fact, 85% of addictions are expressed by the age of 35. And things that put us at risk are a younger age, a family history of substance abuse, a personal history of uh, substance abuse, active psychiatric disease— and temptations to self-medicate. 
Chris, in high school, were you using a lot of opioids? I probably took a Vicodin five times in high school. A friend of mine that I had grown up with said, mm-hmm. there's a new painkiller. It's unbelievably um, little and strong, like taking four Vicodin in one shot. Cost you 20 bucks. I took it with the notion that I would try this drug one time. And, um, you know, that $20 turned to $25,000 a month. Wow. Yeah, I was taking 1,600 milligrams a day. Wow, I mean, that's an incredible amount. And you're talking about OxyContin. Uh, Chris, how did you get the opioids? I mean, prescription, uh, on the street, uh, friends? Friends, doctors, you get your wisdom teeth pulled, you scribe Vicodins, a Percocet. Mm-hmm. So there would be extras and... We would take them. And let me emphasize here that you weren't using opioids to treat a painful condition, you know, like osteoarthritis or cancer pain, for example, or low back pain. I took them for the escape, not to experiment, Mm -hmm. to numb myself, to forget, for the reasons why most people find themselves taking such a drug that can kill you. Yeah. Chris, were you using other substances, things like uh, methamphetamine or alcohol, for example? You know, my drug of choice was opioids, and I didn't want to spend my money on anything else but opioids. And that's a desperate place to find yourself. Research has told us that most patients who are abusing or misusing opioids are getting them from friends, relatives, or dealers. And we're trying to educate patients about proper and safe storage of their opioid medications so that they're not diverted like they were in your case. But Chris, in your experience, where are most people who are abusing opioids getting them? I think initially from medicine cabinet. So a lot of people want to put blame on doctors. You know, you have to be honest with the doctor. Mm -hmm. If you say your pain level is low, they're not going to give you Oxycontin or Percocet. If you say it's high, they're going to give you what they believe you need to get through your pain. My thing with doctors is I think 12 years of education, they should rely on their self-diagnosis and and the honesty of a patient. Well, actually, we do rely on the honesty of patients, and we use tools like uh, opioid agreements and urine drug monitoring and opioid pill counts to try to reduce the risk that is associated with the use of opioids in patients. I think you're talking about two different populations here, the, the addict versus the pain patient. I've dealt with high-level doctors playing professional sports. You know, on a, on a scale of 1 to 10, what is your pain? You know, as an addict, I'm not going to tell the truth, mm-hmm. or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to embellish a little bit. So I think there's, there's two sides to it. Well, there are, and I think that we wouldn't expect addicts to be honest about their pain, whereas we do expect that of legitimate pain patients. And several experts estimate, by the way, that the risk of addiction in the general population is around 10%, and that excludes tobacco. Some researchers, though, have concluded that it ranges somewhere between 3 to 19% in patients with chronic pain. Chris, you mentioned earlier that you got the opioids from doctors and then from the street. Did that change? You know, obviously, you'd always rather get them from a physician. Um, because on the street, they're much more expensive. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the deeper you get in your addiction, you don't want to see doctors anymore. It's exhausting keeping up that lie. So you do what you can to find them on the street. Right. We'll find out what led to Chris's substance abuse in less than one minute. Stay tuned. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is supported by Teva, the leading global pharmaceutical company committed to increasing access to high-quality health care, 
by developing, producing, and marketing affordable generic medicines, as well as innovative and specialty pharmaceuticals. Millennium Health is a leading health solutions company that delivers accurate, timely, clinical actionable information to inform the right treatment decisions for each patient at the right time. Millennium offers a comprehensive suite of services to better tailor patient care. More information is available at www.millenniumhealth.com. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Chris, what ultimately led to your substance abuse? You know, my dad was an alcoholic. It was in my family. You know, our family, unfortunately, felt the effects of divorce. You know, I was a pretty good basketball player, and pressure comes along with that. Mm-hmm. So I like to escape it. Yeah. Drinking beers at 15, 16, smoking pot allowed me to forget my conditions in my house as well as the pressure that I was facing being a very talented basketball player at a young age. Now, Chris, let me stop you there. What were those pressures like? You know, every high school kid in America would want to be in Chris Heron's position when he was 16 years old, mm-hmm. playing in front of 4,000 people every night, having college coaches sit in the stands and watch him. Right. My answer back is you as a doctor or a teacher have the superintendent sit in your classroom for four straight years with a notebook evaluating your performance day in and day out, that's a high-stress environment. Mm -hmm. Why don't we expect that from a 15-year-old kid? Because adults should be able to process that a lot easier than children. But yet those expectations are put on kids, and that's difficult. I found the basement where our parents said we were safe as long as we didn't drive. And that was my escape. Mm -hmm. Now, in fact, you formed the Heron Project in 2011 that targets young people suffering from addiction to drugs and alcohol and identifies those at risk. Chris, what have you learned the consequences are to all of this pressure that parents can place on kids? You know, I I think when it comes to prevention with kids, and I'm on the front lines of this, I speak 250 times a year. Mm -hmm. You know, A, we don't ask them why. Parents want to focus on whose house, how much, where'd you get it. They're, they don't want to ask their kids why. Mm-hmm. And we focus on the worst day instead of the first day. Oh, okay. Focus on the worst day instead of the first day. What, what do you mean by that, Chris? We want to show them horrific pictures of drug addicts and terrible car crashes, drunk driving accidents in front of the school. But mm-hmm. we don't want to talk about the first day. You know, we don't want to talk about where it begins and why it begins. Well, in line with that, you know, we did a show a while back on emotional pain. Sure. One of my guests suffered from severe depression that led to three suicide attempts. Mm-hmm. How much of your addiction was centered on easing deep-seated emotional pain? You know, things like social isolation, uh, guilt, grief, or rejection. I think that's where it all comes from. I think that's the missing component in kids. You know, like we push our kids, so, uh, we push them athletically. We push them academically, but we don't push them socially. Mm-hmm. We drop them off at practice. We make them do their homework. But why don't we, why don't we push them to be better, to work within and, and on themselves? Yeah. You know, we failed kids miserably the way we educate them on wellness. We have them captive for 13 years, and we do very little about it. And that's why you meet kids who cut themselves with razor blades. That's why you meet kids who are on the verge of suicide from bullying and have parents who are addicts and alcoholics, but they can't talk about it in geometry. You know, we've dropped the ball. Sometimes we want to focus on the opioid crisis we're in right now. Mm -hmm. Why not figure out what we've done wrong? And I believe wholeheartedly that we've gone wrong by not doing enough for our children to to educate them on this. For you, after self-exploration, 
What was causing that deep-seated emotional pain? My dad's drinking with the elephant in the room, but we didn't talk about it because alcohol is somewhat accepted. Mm -hmm. From the time I was five years old till I was 14, I remember praying at night and crying that my dad would stop and my parents wouldn't fight over Miller Lite. I knew the damage that a beer can was doing in my home, but at 14 years old, his beer was the first beer I started to drink. Mm -hmm. When a child who suffered from a substance is now picking up that substance at 14 years old, that's tragedy. And that's as sad as it gets. Mm -hmm. But yet, as a society, parents will, be, will still say to this day, well, kids will be kids. That's not a kid being a kid. That's not what high school kids are supposed to do. You know, so it's frustrating. It is frustrating, and especially for somebody like you who's lived it and is now trying to help. Stay with us through the break, because when we come back, we'll talk to Chris about what that emotional pain was like for him. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is supported by The Pain Community, a web-based nonprofit created by people living with pain. Check out paincommunity.org for information, references, advocacy tools, and a premium section to securely interact with other members in forums and chat rooms. Boston Scientific, a leader in microelectric implantable technologies used to treat chronic neuropathic pain. Welcome back. When I feel emotional pain, I often feel it in my abdomen. I mean, my gut. It's visceral. What was it like for you? It was dark. It was lonely. It was daunting. It was it was sad because I saw what it did to my mom. It was impending doom. I knew something bad was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, it did. When I was 17 years old and my parents got divorced, I knew that day was coming. You know, it took years to get there. But that impending doom, that something around the corner was Something was going to give. Yeah. I mean, it must have been really tough, especially given that you were that young. Uh, I mean, it was nerves, um, anxiety. You know, it's hard to go back to, you know, when I was 14. Mm -hmm. But most of it was, I didn't understand it. And to be quite honest with you, I don't understand why people around me never said to me, there were days you used to cry about this and now you're drinking it. That's not okay. It's not okay. On the other hand, I think it's pretty tough for most people to reach out to someone in need that personally. Did you ever feel that your emotional pain manifested itself as physical pain somewhere else in your body? It came out in many forms, whether it was emotional outbursts, anger in classrooms, amongst friends. I'm sure there were many episodes of me displaying, you know, that angst, that emotional pain I was going through yeah. throughout that process. Right. There was a study done in 2008 in the Journal of Psychological Science, and they found that pain caused by emotional distress was felt more deeply and for a longer period of time than pain caused by physical injuries. Did you experience that? Because, you know, you're an athlete and you certainly did sustain injuries from basketball and other sports. Have you found a difference between physical pain and emotional pain? Emotional pain is much, much worse than physical pain. Why do you think that is? Why? Because um, physical pain, you can wrap in a cast, you can throw ice on it, you can take aspirin, Advil. Emotional pain takes time and there's forgiveness on both ends. You have to search and work to get to the place that allows you to get through it. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of reflection, self-reflection and, and raw honesty it's not easy getting there. But when you're able to, there's no better feeling. Mm -hmm. It seems that both physical and emotional pain can certainly hurt when they occur, but emotional pain can recur 
over and over again in our minds, whereas physical pain is remembered as a painful event that happened at a certain time in the past. Absolutely. Emotional pain, you know, it's, it's hard to escape. It is hard. Sure. And many who end up abusing drugs and develop the disease of addiction have a history of trauma or trying to self-treat conditions like depression or anxiety and have a genetic predisposition. And picking up on the genetics, you, you certainly had a genetic factor because you mentioned earlier that your father was an alcoholic. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> you know, but then when you think about it, I, I believe they say you're 40 times more likely if you're genetically predisposed mm-hmm. than a person who isn't. Then you take in the culture that you grow up in with that alcoholism, and then your numbers have to increase. It's the nature that you're growing up in. You know, so if you're 40 times more likely just because you have the gene, grow up with an alcoholic, and I'm sure the numbers spike drastically. Sure. And in fact, it's estimated that alcoholism, for instance, is 40 to 50% genetic. And you were then abusing both alcohol and opioids, right? Yes. Alcohol abuse can lead to serious medical consequences like cerebellar degeneration and memory disorders and things that interfere with the transfer from short-term to long-term memory storage. Did you experience this? I did not. Well, that's fortunate. Were you abusing other substances besides alcohol and opioids? I've done them all. It started with a red Solo cup in a basement, Mm -hmm. drinking beer. That's where it started. I mean, I think that's where we all begin, by taking a couple of sips. And then a couple of sips don't work, so you take a couple of more sips, and then you smoke a joint. A couple of hits don't work, so you smoke a whole one. Right. So it started with alcohol, and then it progressed to other drugs. I went from drinking to smoking, smoking to doing cocaine in college, from cocaine to pills, pills to heroin, some methamphetamines, ended with vodka. Wow. Uh, Chris, you know, we notice changes in eating patterns with substance use and abuse, things like uh, weight loss associated with amphetamine use and heroin use and weight gain from marijuana use. What happened to you? Not drastic weight gain or weight loss. You know, obviously at night when I was starting to begin withdrawal, sugar played a big part. I found myself at 2 o'clock in the morning trying to eat as much sugar as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. As far as drastic weight changes, like you couldn't tell visually. I mean, I was playing for the Boston Celtics taking 1,600 milligrams of oxycontin. I was an NBA basketball player when I was in the thick of addiction. It sounds like drug abuse didn't have much of a change on your athletic appearance then. Stay with us. When we come back, we'll ask Chris a question that he may not want to answer about his sex life. I'm Dr. Paul Christo. And you're listening to Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is supported by Medtronic, a global leader in medical technology, alleviating pain, restoring health, and extending life for millions of people around the world. Visit TameThePain.com to learn about treatment options for chronic pain. Purdue Pharma, making a positive impact on healthcare and on lives, reminding everyone to safeguard medications in their home. For cutting-edge treatments and resources, Follow Dr. Paul Christo on Twitter or like Aches and Gains with Dr. Paul Christo on Facebook. Welcome back. Now, Chris, I know you may not want to answer this, but did you notice any changes in your sex life from drug abuse? Never any changes in sexual behavior. Um, Cocaine shuts that down on, you know, sex isn't an option often. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think that, oh, you know, do cocaine, have sex all night. That wasn't the case. Um, The drug took over, and the last thing I wanted to do was be intimate with anybody. But there was no drastic changes. 
Okay, now let's switch gears. The progression of abuse often starts with uh, oral abuse, then inhalational, and then intravenous. Did you go down that same path? Absolutely. That's the natural, unnatural progression of addiction. I was extremely dependent on Oxycontin. Mm -hmm. The people who I was dealing with told me that they weren't going to have any that day, but they had some heroin, um, and heroin would would hold me over. So I started snorting heroin, and... The circle of people that I was associated with one day said to me, try shooting it. You won't have to snort as much. Mm -hmm. I opened that door and I never looked back. Yeah, it's a treacherous, treacherous process. And you did this primarily for escapism. Yes, yes, absolutely. Not every year, every day. I mean, when I tell my story and, you know, when I was 32 years old, I had overdosed four times and I lost my ability to do anything, let alone parent. I'll provide for my family. Yeah. And I couldn't afford heroin, Oxycontin anymore. So I turned to cheap vodka. Vodka is, is amazing at allowing you to forget. If you drink it fast enough, if you drink enough, it's going to let you forget for a little while. And, and Chris, what were you trying to forget? Everything. Everything that I had put my family through. You know, I had been a dad for the last nine years, and I woke up every morning knowing I had failed as a father. Mm -hmm. Every time I looked at my kids, I knew that they needed more, and I wasn't giving it. I watched my wife fight for our family, and I let her down countless times. Thankfully, I've been married for 17 years. I've been sober for seven and a half, and the greatest accomplishment of my life is is that for seven and a half years, Mm -hmm. I woke up every single morning and went to bed at night believing I was good enough. And there was no need to run away anymore. And I bet that was a real turning point in your life. The reward system in the brain is really powerful. Studies on animals uh, show that they will self-inject addictive substances to the exclusion of all else. I mean, they'll die of thirst, hunger even, at the expense of losing that reward. You know, it's sad sometimes when I go on people's radio shows or TV shows and, and they'll intro me as a former NBA basketball player who lived his childhood dream by playing for the Boston Celtics, but threw it away because of drugs and alcohol. And, but yet they leave out my family. Yeah. Like, who cares about basketball? I mean, I was literally walking away from my kids every single day. Mm-hmm. And, and I, was, I was close, very close to losing them. So that's how powerful addiction is. Indeed. And we know that powerful hold may just not stop there and can easily end in death. In fact, at the height of your drug use, you overdosed on heroin and crashed, and it was reported that you died for 30 seconds. How much of that incident do you remember? Yes, I was overdosed. I was brought back with Narcan. I crashed my car. Mm-hmm. I remember waking up in the ambulance. I remember starting my car. I could feel my lungs and my breathing slowing down, yeah. and I knew that I, I had to get somewhere because I probably would have just died in my car on the side street and probably would have been found two days later. Mm -hmm. So I started driving, and and I crashed a couple of miles away. I remember nothing about the ride. The two miles I drove, I don't remember. Um, I thank God that I didn't hurt anybody else. But I remember waking up in the ambulance with a police officer standing over me, explaining to me what had just happened. Wow, what a story. And I'm glad you're still here to tell it. By the way, Narcan is also known as naloxone, and it's an opioid antagonist. What that means technically is that it's like an antidote for opioid overdose. Chris, thank you for being here today. Thank you. Please join us for part two when we move from addiction to recovery. 
We have just enough time for a question, and here's one from Yvonne in Topeka, Kansas. Dr. Christo, I have a bad ligament tear in my foot. It's still weak and painful. I've done six months of physical therapy, and the orthopedic surgeon doesn't want to operate. One of my friends mentioned stem cell therapy. Would that help? Well, Yvonne, first of all, stem cells have the ability of self-renewal. They can replace cells that have been lost or destroyed or change the behavior of other cells. Stem cells have been the topic of great interest for health, diseases, and biomedical research. We're in the very early stages of research on using stem cell therapy for things like cartilage defects and arthritis, tendon tears, ligament tears, and nerve injury, but it looks promising. The results seem better if the tear is larger, and I would consider consulting a specialist in regenerative medicine at this point. This may be an orthopedist, a pain specialist, or a sports medicine specialist. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. The views and opinions expressed in this radio program are solely the views of Dr. Paul Christo and do not necessarily express the views of this radio station and Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, nor an endorsement by any or all of them of any of its content. This show provides medical information, not advice. Please consult your personal physician before engaging in any course of treatment or use of any of the techniques or products discussed on this show. Discussion of particular uses of products on this show have not been approved by any of the manufacturers of such products. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulchristomd.com. That's paulchristomd.com. Aches and Gains is produced by Tom Blair and Ty Ford. Elsa Langford is the technical consultant and engineer. Dr. Paul Christo is the executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Aches and Gains with Dr. Paul Christo.